I'm delighted uh, to have such a to see uh, such a large audience from around the world. It's a testimony to the importance of the topic. As uh, you mentioned, uh, this is uh, this book is in two volumes, and today we'll be talking uh, only about uh, Mossadegh, maybe a little bit uh, uh, of commentary on the second book uh, at certain times. As most of the audience is probably aware, uh, Mossadegh insisted that the Shah had to reign and not rule. He also nationalized the oil industry to end uh, British colonial exploitation of Iran. Uh, for that, he was overthrown in a coup, was tried for treason, sentenced to three years in prison, and spent the rest of his life under house arrest and enforced exile in his country home in Ahmedabad, where he died in March of 1967. Uh, in fact, uh, this coming Saturday is the 55th anniversary of his passing. Um, I, of course, did not know uh, uh, Mossadegh. Uh, I was uh, in first grade when he was uh, uh, in power, but I did hear a lot of debates at home and uh, around me uh, at the time. My most vivid recollection of the period is the 28th of Mordad, uh, when we heard this crackling sound, uh, uh, which I thought at the time was the sound of firecrackers, uh, half tarape that we used to use for uh, Besuri. My brother took me to the terrace of our home uh, to see where uh, the noise was coming from. And it was coming from the direction of Mossadegh's com compound which was a few blocks away from us, uh, from our home. Throughout, the, uh, throughout my life, I was fascinated uh, by uh, this exceptional political leader. I was attracted in particular by his patriotism, ideals, vision, and governance philosophy. Most important premise of the book uh, is that Mossadegh had the right ideas, but perhaps at, a, at the wrong time, because he was ahead of his time, and hence the book's title. The early historiography about Mossadegh was written by what I call the victors and largely distorted his character and what he stood for. It was time therefore to revisit various hypotheses and arguments based on decades of research into the Iranian records, as well as the declassified official documents of uh, uh, the UK, the US, and lately the, the World Bank. It is impossible to summarize 800 pages and some 2000 footnotes. Therefore, uh, today I will share with you some highlights from my observations and conclusions regarding Mossadegh's values, uh, governance, uh, overthrow, as well as his alleged shortcomings, the legacy he left behind, and finally, the lessons that could be drawn from his story. Mossadegh was born into a, a royal Ajar family. His mother was a royal princess. He entered public life from a young age, he was the Mostofi of Khorasan at age 15. Mostofi is the financial administrator uh, role in government. And later he uh, rose to be uh, a minister, several portfolios and governorships. And he was the first doctor of law from a European university, uh, first Iranian doctor of law. I mean. His mother had a great influence on Mossadegh's character. She told her son, quote, the weight of individuals in society is determined by the hardships they endure on behalf of the people. According to Mossadegh, that advice became a program for my life. And after that, whatever insults I heard made me feel readier and equipped to serve my country. 
most of those value system was a, a synthesis of modernity and indigenous codes. He was a very Iranian child of the enlightenment with an emphasis on very and Iranian. He understood modernity correctly to be a process of transformation of mindsets and values. He made a distinction between modernization as a structural construct and modernity as a mental concept. One could uh, therefore pursue uh, structural modernization without necessarily transforming underlying value systems and social rules. This condition can be called pseudo-modernism. Many of Mossadegh's contemporaries often fell into the trap of authoritarian edicts to, moder uh, to modernize without necessarily leading to modernity. Mossadegh strongly opposed Reza Shah's edicts to ban the hijab for women and to force men to wear the Pahlavi hat. He took issue with the authoritarian manner in which the edicts were imposed, but not the concept. With the same vigor, however, Mossadegh also resisted Ayatollah Khashoggi's pressures on him to impose the veil and ban alcohol. Here is Mossadegh's illuminating reply to Khashoggi, quote, the government's purpose is not to lead people to heaven. The government's duty is the correct use of resources to improve the welfare of the people. Mossadegh had very interesting attitudes towards religion. In the spiritual realm, he was a man of faith, but in the political realm, he relied on reason. Mossadegh often said about his identity, I am Iranian and Muslim. His understanding of Islam can be discerned from his doctoral dissertation, Last Will and Testament in Shia jurisprudence. He wrote, quote, in Islamic law, religion and law are two inseparable disciplines. Both have human reason as a common source. This source is sufficient for the law to continue to develop and adapt itself to the new uh, requirements. Here, Mossadegh is arguing that in governance, the most important lever is reason, not dogma, and that the law must be changeable under new social conditions. His life's high purpose revolved around two universal ideals, national sovereignty and liberty. In his mind, these ideals were intertwined concepts, like two sides of the same coin. Mossadegh has always tried to reform the system from within. He was not a revolutionary. He never looked to overthrow the regime. Even when the Shah fled Iran following the failed coup attempt on August 1653, Mossadegh did not agree to abolish the monarchy. Mossadegh has had interesting conceptions of power. Let me make three observations here. Um, he did not seek power for power's sake. Mossadegh refused offers to become prime minister on four occasions and resigned once. He eschewed party politics and preferred to lead the national movement rather than parties. This was a strength when he was in opposition, but is generally, it generally became a weakness when he governed. Mossadegh did not abuse power to suppress his people. Under Mossadegh, security forces occasionally committed violence against protesters. He immediately fired those responsible. By contrast, his predecessors and successors um, uh, very, very, very often uh, resorted to uh, such tactics. Uh, during his 27 months uh, in, in power, not one political opponent was executed. Finally, Mossadegh showed great courage uh, standing up to power. He stood up not only to uh, Churchill, but also to the two Pahlavis. 
Mossadegh was one of the very few political elites who opposed Reza Khan's uh, accession uh, to, to the throne because of concern of dictatorship. There are two eliminating <clears throat> tales here about the different mindsets and values between Mossadegh <clears throat> and the Pahlavis. Uh, first is the encounter with <clears throat> Reza Shah. Arriving at an audience with the Shah, Mossadegh says to him, quote, when I was coming to see you, my eyes fell upon a huge arch gate. Why does his majesty desire such a majestic building? Reza Shah answers, it is my house. Don't I deserve a house? Mossadegh replies, the Shah's real home is the heart of the nation. If he has that, he does not need buildings. Then he adds, what is the purpose of erecting ceremonial arches in the provinces and bringing people in borrowed clothes to welcome the Shah? Reza Khan replies, your questions have no answer. The second uh, story is about an encounter Mossadegh had with <clears throat> Reza Shah's son in 1941, shortly after Reza Shah was uh, uh, exiled. This was Mossadegh's blunt prophetic advice to the young king. Quote, do not pursue the policies of your father. Choose the people around you carefully and don't back the same people he backed. Disassociate yourself from the unacceptable past and make your own history. It does not matter if you are overthrown uh, as, uh, as long as you are respected for having done right. Alas, if only the young man uh, had listened. Let me turn now to Mossadegh's governance. <clears throat> His overarching goal was to tame the oppressive state, empower the society, and change mindsets. Let me say a few words uh, first uh, uh, about the context for his governance and his philosophy of governance before addressing his reforms. Iran was suffering from extreme poverty and dire economic conditions, including slow growth in the non-oil sectors and systematic, uh, uh, systemic corruption that, <clears throat> that had depleted the public treasury despite all revenues. The National Front that generally supported uh, Mossadegh was an amalgam of political parties with different uh, orientations that often pulled in the opposite directions. Britain, uh, the, the British, uh, both the, the government as well as the uh, oil company were accustomed to owning Iranian prime ministers and interfere in the country's internal affairs. Mossadegh also uh, did not receive uh, any substantial economic assistance during his time as prime minister. As to Mossadegh's philosophy of governance, I have three observations. First, Mossadegh's lodestars were sovereignty, democracy, social justice, and empowerment. Three quotes summarize this philosophy. There could be no freedom without national sovereignty. Iran can only be reformed and governed through democracy and social justice. If you want to reform the country, you have to involve the people and the society must be brought into the reform process. Instead of saying, I will do the reform and if you don't like it, I'll arrest you. Here, he was no doubt uh, hinting at Reza Shah's approach to reform. Second point is that his philosophy of governance was people-centered uh, people and not ideological. He did not follow any isms. For him, there was only one ism and that was patriotism. The closest political school of thought to his philosophy was the European social liberalism and Thomas Marshall's social citizenship. In a nutshell, Mossadegh envisaged an Iranian social democracy. 
third point is that Mossadegh's ideals and principles underpinned the many policy initiatives and innovations that he undertook. The principle of sovereignty was a driving force for the nationalization of the oil industry, the doctrine of passive balance and the economy without oil strategy. The rule of law principle underpinned his initiatives to force the Shah to reign, to protect freedom of the press and political parties and to codify citizen uh, rights and responsibilities. The principle of justice would inspire his initiatives to provide social welfare protection to workers, to end peasant servitude, to protect the poor and to promote equitable growth with shared prosperity. Empowerment would enlighten his uh, quest to promote citizen participation in the political process through free elections and through elected city and village councils. Let me turn to uh, his reforms. Mossadegh is generally associated with the nationalization of uh, the oil industry. Well, that was a very important act. His contribution uh, was much more than that. I think he should be remembered for his bold domestic reforms as well. Mossadegh was the originator of several novel ideas and policies, which I describe in uh, detail in chapter six of my book. To reform state structures and implement progressive policies more quickly, he obtained legislative powers from the Majlis. In 27 months, um, he promulgated 203 bills in unprecedented pace, about one uh, law per four days. To take the country towards an Iranian social democracy, Mossadegh freed presence from uh, forced labor, bigari, uh, used to be called in, in Farsi, and empowered the farmers. He freed the press and empowered the urban citizens. He established the national social security system for workers, which was unprecedented, unprecedented in the region and uh, took place only 15 years after Fed, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt established the social security system in the United States. And finally, uh, under Mossadegh's rule, uh, 30 city councils were established and 19,000 village councils uh, um, uh, began to work. During 27 months of his premiership, Iran arguably enjoyed more democratic freedoms, better rule of law, and more equality before the law than during any other era in modern history. Give you three examples. His first act as prime minister was to issue a circular to his security uh, officials uh, uh, saying, quote, the press can write about me whatever they please. And boy, did they ever do that with such, with the most virulent epithets. Second point is that in reply to the uh, ulama and the uh, Fadayana Islam, he declared, quote, our task is not to impose political and religious ways on the people. We only have the right to intervene when the law and order is not respected. Some of the religious authorities are asking me to impose the wearing of the veil and to close nightclubs. I will never do such a thing. Man is free and has the right to choose and everyone is accountable before their God. When Ayatollah Burujerdi asked them to go after the Baha'is, Mossadegh replied, quote, in my opinion, there is no difference between a Muslim and a Baha'i. On the downside, however, uh, being a Democrat in a revolutionary context, uh, led to some chaotic situations and a perception of lack of public order, uh, particularly in Tehran. Then to chart a new foreign policy, Mossadegh developed the doctrine of passive balance, he became a role model in the region and among the developing countries. According to Jamal Abdul Nasser, Mossadegh's policies against British colonialism inspired Nasser 
to, rebel, uh, to nationalize uh, the Suez Canal. And Mouazanem and Fi was also the inspiration for the non-allied movement. And Mossadegh is considered uh, the grandfather of that movement. To establish Iranian sovereignty, he nationalized the oil industry, as uh, many of you know. Uh, but he made a firm commitment to compensate the former company, uh, Anglo-Iranian oil company, which I discuss in detail in chapter seven of my book. Because some of the uh, criticisms of him was that he confiscated, at least the British used to say that he confiscated uh, the company. This is not true. The main issue uh, was that uh, AIOC and the UK government didn't recognize the Nationalization Act and insisted to continue to control operations and profits. Britain responded with draconian sanctions and threat of invasion, which was eventually blocked by the intervention of President Truman. Mossadegh was willing to negotiate on the modalities of compensation, but not the principle of Iran's control of oil. For him, this was a moral issue. Winston Churchill, on the other hand, was willing to give Iran a few more shillings per barrel, but not give up control of oil. For him, it was a control issue. These positions were irreconcilable, except in a Faustian uh, bargain. In other words, the return of AIOC in disguise. Mossadegh refused to go for such a bargain. Meanwhile, the US had, a, uh, had played a very clever game in Iran. US goals were threefold. Dislodge UK from the monopoly of Iran's oil, prevent Iran from operating industry on its own, and enter the Iran's oil industry. US strategy was to initially support Iran to weaken UK, then support UK once UK agreed to let uh, US oil companies in on Iran's oil pile. Accordingly, in early uh, 1950, a US diplomat in Tehran would tell his Iranian uh, uh, counterparts, quote, Throw AIC out, negotiate new terms. We'll take, uh, uh, we'll take up the slack. American ships will pull into dock tomorrow and buy your oil. Don't you guys worry, unquote. A lot has been uh, said and debated about whether US was moved by the red menace or its oil interest. I believe that the US looked at Iran through, definitely through the prism of the red menace, but its perspective passed through a very, very thick oil filter. Uh, so I fall somewhere in between Gasirovsky and Abraham Yan, and closer probably to the Abraham Yan's thesis on this. The, it is in, incontestable that the key, key players the, on the American side were all steeped in the oil business. The two Dulles brothers uh, were lawyers in the Samuel and Cromwell uh, law firm that was AIOC's law firm. And McGee himself, the Assistant Secretary of State, uh, was an oil man himself. Finally, the US preferred to deal with an autocratic uh, client like the Shah rather than a popular democratic uh, government uh, led by Mossadegh. In the event to get US on their side, the British offered a big carrot. In November of 51, a meeting in Paris, Anthony Eden promised uh, Dean Acheson that American companies would be allowed a share of Iran's oil. British sanctions and threats of invasion did not bend Mossadegh. Therefore, he had to be overthrown and a more obedient government installed that would accept the, the British and now also the US terms. That was achieved with a consortium agreement after the coup when the US companies made good on the Eden Acheson deal and took over 40% of Iranian 
uh, oil pie. There were in total six proposals to resolve the oil crisis. Most relied on clever wording to camouflage the true intent, which was to maintain de facto foreign control of operations and or impose such burden of compensation that Iran would be mortgaged for decades. One proposal by the US, uh, McGee-Mossadegh deal, was accepted by Mossadegh, but rejected by Eden. One proposal was also made by the World Bank. At the time and since, for the past 70 years, even uh, Mossadegh supporters have criticized him for not accepting the World Bank offer. But they were not privy to what went on inside the World Bank. I document the story of negotiations with the World Bank for the first time in chapter seven of my book. There were two missions in early 1952. The second was led by Robert Garner, the vice president of the World Bank. In a nutshell, the bank's proposal involved uh, reactivating Iran's oil operations for export with the bank acting as a managing agency on behalf of both parties to the dispute and not the Iranian government alone. And second, hiring UK technicians to operate the facilities, uh, quote unquote, efficiently. These two key provisions would emerge as the insurmountable obstacles to an agreement with Mossadegh. After decades of research uh, and pouring through more than 2,000 pages in the archives of the World Bank, I started looking at this in 1980 and periodically would call in uh, these boxes of archives from what we used to call the mine, uh, a mountain under West Virginia mountains that stores the World Bank's uh, uh, archives. And periodically I would just sit and uh, sift through them. And over the years, uh, you know, I came across some, some fantastic observations, but unfortunately I couldn't say anything publicly or publish because uh, these were uh, uh, banks' uh, secret documents and uh, were not released. Fortunately, now they have been uh, um, uh, declassified and I can now report. My main conclusions, it's a long story, so I, I'm just uh, doing it very, very quickly. Uh, the bank did not believe, uh, behave as a true neutral international body, but as a de facto mouthpiece of the British. For example, the bank's proposal was developed uh, as a result of discussions over two, three weeks with two uh, senior directors of AIOC um, uh, that spent uh, hours and hours with the bank uh, staff. But during that period, the bank uh, had absolutely no contact with either the um, uh, Iran's um, executive director on the bank's executive uh, board, nor with the Iranian uh, embassy officials. Second point is that the World Bank proposal was designed not as a development scheme, but a politically driven plan to function only with UK technicians over two years. Why not five years? And why not use non-UK uh, technicians? By insisting that UK technicians were indispensable for quote, inefficient operations, unquote, World Bank created a Trojan horse under its logo. The World Bank staff generally behaved in a professional manner and often try to find reasonable options to, bring, uh, to bridge the gap on, on the key issues. But World Bank management stuck to its initial design and rejected any staff attempts to find compromises that Mossadegh could accept. Where does this lead the bank? Asked the lead World Bank staff in an internal note. 
his answer uh, is quite uh, illuminating. Quote, from Iranian's point of view, selling them down the river if the deal is made to the British, a convenient servant. The external shocks caused by the UK sanctions could have plunged uh, the Iranian economy into severe depression and hyperinflation. In such cases, typically the governments uh, follow two basic approaches, either a passive policy stance, in other words, circumvent the sanctions with existing policy within an existing policy framework and try to make ends meet, or take an active policy stance, in other words, adjust the structure of the economy to become more resilient. Mossadegh chose the active approach by introducing his innovative strategy of economy without oil that was designed to adjust and stabilize the economy, mitigate the impact on the poor, lay the foundations of a sustained uh, path to growth by diversifying the economy that had been uh, over-dependent on oil. The goals included promotion of non-oil exports and import substitution with domestic products, uh, limiting uh, non-essential imports, fiscal consolidation, control of inflation, and protection of the vulnerable. The policy tool included a number of things. The most important one was the flexible exchange rate that led to about 50% depreciation. The key uh, short-term outcomes were quite impressive. Most of them, uh, um, uh, as a result of these policies, imports uh, declined by about uh, 20%, especially uh, luxury goods. The volume of non-oil exports doubled, balance of payments was sustainable at about 2% of the GDP, and budget deficits were contained at manageable levels, again, around 2% of the GDP. Basic goods were available, hyperinflation was prevented, but per capita incomes stagnated. And uh, the details are um, uh, in chapter six. Even the CIA analysis just before the coup concluded, quote, Mossadegh's financial problems are unlikely to produce an early crisis, despite his probable continued resort to the printing press to meet current expenses. Crops are good. The general level of economic activity is fairly normal. And such inflation as has developed shows no signs of soon getting out of control, out of quote, uh, end of quote. In a nutshell, Mossadegh implement, implemented a de facto economic structural adjustment program three decades before the so-called Washington Consensus, but without any technical or financial assistance of the World Bank and the IMF. This is another example of being ahead of his time. In the event, Mossadegh was unable to realize his vision due to a number of factors. Three main observations. First, political context for governance was not accommodating. Internally, the Shah had refused to reign and insisted on ruling, which led to a constitutional crisis. The national front formations that supported Mossadegh were divided ideologically, and they were squeezed from the right by uh, reactionary elites that resisted transformation change, and from the left by the two-day party's advocacy of revolutionary approaches. In that context, political consensus to push for bold societal reforms remained elusive. Externally, Britain wanted to continue to control oil and the prime ministers. US sought a piece of the oil pie from the UK and to block the Soviet control of Iran. And the Soviet Union considered Mossadegh an American stooge and supported it today. Second point is that Mossadegh was the target of um, foreign schemes uh, from uh, the very first month in office. 
MI6 and CIA operations were buying Majlis deputies, politicians, and the press, and creating chaos to destabilize Mossadegh's government right from the get-go. Two weeks after Mossadegh became prime minister, the CIA and State Department officials discussed getting rid of him in the favor of quote-unquote autocratic alternative. The KGB, in the meantime, was also very active through the Tudeh party to weaken Mossadegh by violent clashes with Mossadegh supporters and uh, penetration of the Iranian army. Finally, the Shah and his courtiers, as well as the purged army officers like General Zahedi, collaborated with foreign intelligence operations to undermine Mossadegh's government. The third point, and this is the key, Mossadegh's vision clashed with the prevailing world order while Churchill and Eden's mindsets were mired in the 19th century colonialism and imperial bully politics, Mossadegh talked of national sovereignty and self-determination as a moral right. An excerpt from Mossadegh's famous speech, which uh, appears on the uh, blackboard in white chalk above his grave in Ahmedabad, reads, if we are not to be free to act in our own house, but instead have foreigners dominate us, put a yoke around our neck and pull us in every direction they want to. Death is preferable to such a life. The, world's, uh, the world power's uh, implicit doctrine at the time was, either uh, you are with us or we will make you uh, with us. Similar to Bush's, you're either with us or against us. Most of the passive balance doctrine was the equivalent of neither with you nor against you. Let me make two personal observations here about the West, especially the US. A sovereign liberal democratic government in Iran was not in the strategic interest of big powers at the time. Western democratic idealism be damned when authoritarianism is the expedient best friend. Failure of the West, uh, to support Mossadegh was in line with the following logic. It is better to have a reliable direct, uh, dictator who is with us than a Democrat who is neither with us nor against us. Let me turn to the history, uh, to the story of uh, Mossadegh's overthrow. In a nutshell, he was overthrown by a popular uprising, not by a popular uprising, but by a conspiracy involving foreign and local elements. His opponents pursued a three-pronged strategy. First, destabilization. CIA's TP Bidan uh, program and their local network of uh, um, uh, agents run by the so-called Bosco brothers and the MI6 uh, spies and their local uh, network uh, run by the Rashidian brothers were the key uh, uh, elements in this conspiracy. In addition, as mentioned, MI6 and CIA had on their payroll large numbers of par parliamentarians, par politicians, and news editors. The second prong was disinformation, primarily through articles written by US and UK spies and published in local press and uh, who were in the pay of the CIA and MI6. The third prong was removal. Uh, which unfolded over several months, like a play in several acts over two years. The final act uh, was un uh, unfolded in two phases under um, uh, uh, 
the combined uh, direct the, 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 the management of the MI6's Operation Boot and uh, uh, CIA's Operation TP Ajax. First was the attempted dismissal of Mossadegh by the Shah's Parman on the 25th of Mordad, which failed uh, with the arrest of Colonel Nasiri. And finally, the violent overthrow of Mossadegh's government on the 28th of Mordad, when mercenary ruffian uh, mobs and, tank command, and tanks commandeered and by purged military officers eventually attacked Mossadegh's house and looted it. In recent years, considerable evidence uh, has emerged that corroborates the involvement of foreign intelligence agents and their Iranian uh, allies, thus challenging the revisionist myths that it was an indigenous uprising. <clears throat> My research has reached a firm conclusion about the role of the CIA and MI6 in the coup that is documented in chapter uh, eight of my book. Think of a culinary analogy. The chefs and the recipes were foreign, the raw materials were indigenous, and the firewood was locally procured using the funds that the chefs dispensed, and they dispensed a lot. Without the chefs and their money, the locals would have uh, been unable to cook the brew. Similarly, without the local ingredients and firewood, the chefs would have had a difficult time uh, doing the cooking. The overthrow of Mossadegh's government was the first regime change by the United States and Britain since World War II. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it was not the last. Another attempt at regime change is underway in Ukraine as I speak. This one is also personal to me. I was born in Iran of Georgian and Ukrainian parents. Over the past seven decades, I have witnessed similar acts. In the 1950s, the overthrow of Mossadegh in my country of birth at the start of the Cold War. Then in the 90s, at the end of the Cold War, the overthrow of Ziad Gamsahurdia, the president of Georgia, the country of my father's birth. That story about the first regime change and Gamsahurdia's story is the subject of the second volume of my two books. And now uh, the invasion and the attempt to overthrow the government of Ukraine, the country of my mother's birth at the start of what I call a new Cold War. Seven decades ago, the West was the culprit. Three decades ago, the Soviet Union was the culprit. And unfortunately, the West stood silent. And today, Russia is the aggressor but at least the West is finally standing up to the occasion. As I observe the current events in Ukraine, I am reminded of the prescient wisdom contained in what Ziyad Gamsahurdia, President of Georgia, conveyed to me in 1991 before his overthrow. And with a plea to pass it on to the West, he said, quote, Kremlin's long-term aim is to delegitimize and destabilize democratic governments in the Soviet space. They will do anything to destabilize us. Lies, black, black propaganda, fake stories, bribery, etc. For us, it will be a struggle to the end. They will try to overthrow our national government. We will have no chance unless the West realizes what is going on and helps us consolidate the election victory into a functioning government. I passed on the message to the West, but regretfully it fell on deaf ears then. Let me turn to um, criticisms of Mossadegh. In chapter nine, I discussed the pathology of the national uh, uh, movement and the national front 
and assess uh, the main allegations made against uh, Mossadegh. I'll pick two of them uh, since we don't have much time. These are the more important ones. The first is that uh, the allegation that Mossadegh violated the constitution by calling for uh, a referendum and that he dissolved uh, the majlis. Well, uh, the context is important. Mossadegh has suspected that about 40 deputies in the majlis were bought by the uh, MIA, MI6 and CIA, and they were scheming to depose him. In fact, uh, the declassified record con con confirms that, and uh, I was surprised to find actually the actual prices of some of the uh, politicians. Uh, um, and in such a, uh, in, typically in such political crises in democracies, uh, they dissolve parliament and they call for new election. As a Democrat, Mossadegh asked the Shah to dissolve the Majlis and call new elections. The Shah refused. Again, as a Democrat, Mossadegh turned to the people to resolve the matter. It is true that legally, the constitution is mute on the subject of the referendum. It neither condones it nor it bars it. But it is very clear that it's the people that are the sovereign. Article 26 says that the powers of state emanate from the people. And Article 35 uh, says that um, uh, the monarchy itself is an endowment by people to the monarch. Therefore, Mossadegh's act was fundamentally democratic in its spirit, even though there was no provision in the constitution for a referendum. Besides, if Mossadegh's referendum, some critics say was illegal, then what about the Shah's referendum in 1963? Was that illegal? After the referendum, Mossadegh again asked the Shah to dissolve uh, the Majlis. The Shah refused. Then on the 25th of Mordad, the day of the unsuccessful coup, Mossadegh finally issued a statement that read, quote, in line with people's will, the solution of Majlis is proclaimed. Now, important that it, it, he does not say, I dissolve the Majlis, because he knew he did not have the power to do so. He says the people's will is proclaimed. This was exactly the wording that he had sent to the Shah, asking him to dissolve the Majlis. Since only the Shah could dissolve it, the Majlis remained in office. The, the, this notion that uh, Mossadegh dissolve the Majlis just is not correct. The Shah did it, but only weeks after the coup. The second point is that the allegation that Mossadegh disobeyed Shah's Parman to dismiss him. Some have called Mossadegh's action here uh, itself a coup d'etat. In fact, it could be argued that the Farmans were illegitimate because of the following. First, Farmans were unconstitutional in spirit and practice. In a constitutional monarchy, executive power is vested in the monarch as head of state, but in practice, it is exercised by the government. Hence, they call it Her Majesty's government. It does not mean that she can fire and hire any government. It's a ceremonial power. In other words, the queen cannot dismiss Boris Johnson without the consent of the parliament. This arrangement is due to the important principle of inviolable inviolability of the monarch. Hence, the power is delegated to the government so it can be accountable to the parliament, to people's representatives who are the sovereign. 
Iranian constitution was modeled on the Belgium constitution where the king reigns and the government rules. The Iranian constitution assigned only two specific powers to the Shah, commander in chief and the declaration of war. The Iranian constitution also, however, contained ambiguities. The way it was, some of the articles are written regarding the Shah's power, uh, powers versus the government and the Majlis. These ambiguities were somewhat clarified in the second Majlis under Ahmad Shah and his regent at the time, Nasser al-Mulk, that the Shah has no authority and responsibility. Then again, uh, during the 17th Majlis, there was a special commission of the Majlis to study the, 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 the question. And it concluded that the Shah has no executive authority. Read literally, Article 46 of the Iranian constitution says that the ministers are appointed and dismissed by the Shah's Parman. Uh, but in a constitutional monarchy, this is only a ceremonial role. In other words, signing of the Farman and only with the consent of the Majlis, the same as it is in Britain. The monarch in a constitutional system, constitutional monarchy cannot on his or her own will fire and hire prime ministers. Moreover, articles 44 and 60 of the Iranian constitution Specify, specify concretely that the ministers are fully accountable to the Majlis, not the Shah. And Article 64 even underscores that ministers should not invoke Shah's written oral, or, oral order as an excuse to absolve themselves from the responsibility before the Majlis. And Farman is a written order. If you know, in the end, uh, this is really a question of if the Shah could fire and hire the ministers at will, it would not be a constitutional monarchy. In fact, there is a very interesting precedent uh, in the Iranian uh, history on that. When Reza Khan was uh, prime minister, Ahmad Shah decided to fire him. He issued a farman, farman az, dismissal farman. Reza Khan uh, was mad and he retired to his um, uh, village in Rudehen. The Majlis met, ruled that this was unconstitutional, reinstated Reza and sent a committee to escort the prime minister back to Tehran to take up his position. And the irony of ironies, guess who was a member of that committee? Mohammad Mossadegh. Second point is that despite the referendum, as I mentioned earlier, the Majlis was formally in office. Mossadegh had the authority from the Majlis to legislate, which the Shah himself had signed into law. Until the end of that authority, no one had the right to dismiss uh, him but the Majlis. In fact, arguably, it was the Shah who violated the very law that he himself had signed. Third, if it was a legitimate process, why did the Shah not have the Farman delivered in daylight through minister of court per the established protocol, but instead by a colonel with tanks and at midnight? And fourth, the Farmans appeared not genuine. 
they had been tampered with in the sense that uh, they did not follow the established procedure and protocol. Colonel Nasiri in his interrogation after he was arrested admitted that the Shah had signed the blank letterheads. He did not even know what was in the letters that he was signing, in the farmans that he was signing. The text was added later by Hirat at, at court. In addition, there were several irregularities. In, in, in fact, for example, Mordad was actually misspelled Moradad. Finally, and most curiously, the original dismissal farman, as well as all copies of that document have mysteriously disappeared ever since. Most curiously, the dismissal farman was never introduced as evidence during Mossadegh's trial, where he had been specifically and formally charged with not obeying the Shah's order dismissing him. But the document that they were accusing him of not, not, not following was never introduced in court. Let me conclude this section with my own personal criticisms of Mossadegh. It is not in what he did, but rather in what he did not do. He did not court-martial the Puches, General Zahedi and Colonel Nasiri. He did not call people to defend the government on the 28th of Mordad, and he did not declare a republic after the Shah fled the country. About his legacy, I argue in the book that <clears throat> Mossadegh was the most patriotic uh, ethical and honest Iranian leader of the past two centuries. He was born in the 19th uh, century. He governed in the 20th century, but with ideas that are current in the 21st century. Mossadegh was the connective tissue that links the dreams of Iran's constitutional revolutionaries in the early 20th century with the aspirations of Iranians for freedom and the rule of law in the early 21st century. There is no expiry date on the ideals that he espoused and gave his life for, sovereignty, liberty, rule of law, and social justice. Let me conclude with some lessons. I have five points. In a revolutionary process, it is nearly impossible for a democratic leader to, uh, to succeed by governing within the rule of law. Second, Faced with economic sanctions, governments should restructure the economy to make it more resilient and design policies that can reduce the level of hardship for the vast majority of people. Third, to successfully defend their country's sovereignty against stronger powers, weaker nations need asymmetric strategies to counter and resist the superior military and political and economic forces that have been arrayed against them. Fourth, Imposing economic sanctions against the country does not always ensure that the government will submit to the will of the imposer of sanctions or that the affected population will rise uh, against its government. Supporting dictatorships, finally, supporting dictatorships that are with you uh, or helping bring to power puppet governments that are mere executors of your political interests is likely a losing strategy in the long run. I would like to conclude my talk today with an excerpt from Mossadegh's uh, final uh, remarks at his trial. My one and only sin and my greatest sin is that I nationalized Iran's oil industry and dismantled from this country the colossal, colossal um, apparatus of colonialism and political and economic influence of the world's largest empire and that I locked horns 
with the most dreadful colonialist and foreign intelligence organizations. I thank you for your attention, but before uh, answering your questions, I would like to share uh, with you an iconic image of uh, Mossadegh, which appears on the spine of my book, and that was taken shortly before his passing. In my view, it conjures uh, thoughts of anguish and many, many what ifs. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Gorgiasani. Thank you for a very detailed and informative talk. We have many questions and many comments. So I'm gonna to try to get to as many as possible. As I said in the beginning, we will likely run a few minutes past 11. So we hope everyone can um, stay on a little bit to uh, hear the questions. So um, getting to the first one, a viewer writes, anyone's legacy is based on movements that they shape after they leave the stage. Mossadegh's National Front does not have a shining record. In 63, it sided with Khomeini against the Shah's reforms. And in 79, the National Front pledged its allegiance against Khomeini, again to Khomeini, leading the secular opposition into the arms of Khomeini. Isn't Mossadegh and his National Front responsible for today's disaster in Iran? Um, in my view, no, uh, because first of all, the National Front that was um, supporting Mossadegh and the national fronts that continued afterwards uh, were not the same. First of all, the people, some of the people were the same, but the policies were uh, not the same. The second one, for example, Mossadegh himself, uh, not, in, not that he opposed it, but he, he, uh, he objected to the way uh, the executive committee was uh, picked, etc. But fundamentally, the the policies, you have to see it in the context of times. The same people who say um, Mossadegh is responsible for what the National Front did 20, 30 years, 40 years after him, uh, have to also answer, well, we don't know. If Mossadegh had been around, what would Mossadegh have done? Only from a histor historical point of view, you judge a person from what he stood for, more importantly, his actions and the legacy that he leaves behind. Others in his name have done many things and said many things. I don't think that it is fair to judge the person on the basis of what 40 years later, um, uh, some, someone who claims to be in the national front today um, uh, claims. Thank you. Another viewer writes, you say he promoted elections and citizens participation, yet he suspended parliamentary elections midway because he feared that his opponents would gain strength. Many cities did not have representation in the Majlis. How can he have promoted elections? Well, uh, yes, it's true that he did not complete the elections, but the reason was that the opaque power centers, the deep state had interfered to rig the elections over there. In Tehran, at least, they were able to keep an eye and have fairly fair and free elections. And because they were trying to stack the rest of it, that's why it was stopped. But he was going to, he was going to continue it after changing the law on elections, which again, the deep state opposed because their power would have been uh, diluted. So 
it is technically correct that he uh, stopped the elections after Tehran uh, uh, deputies were, were, were selected. But the reason was because he was sure that uh, those elections would not be fair and free. And all his life, he had talked about fair and free elections. In fact, uh, uh, his, when he came to power, he had two points, a government of two programs, one nationalization of the oil industry, second, uh, uh, changing the election law. He changed the election law to the, to the uh, city uh, councils uh, and Shah Dariz and the Shoroye uh, Deh, but he was unable to change the law. Uh, he could have, interestingly, he could have uh, rammed it through because he had the powers. He had the plenary powers from the Majlis, but he refused to do it until there was a consensus in the society about the new election law. Thank you. Another viewer writes, what do you think Mossadegh's greatest message for Iranians was? Do you think freedom and a law-abiding state and the separation of religion and state were his central message? And if so, do you think he succeeded in conveying his message? If I had to pick, I think national sovereignty would be number one, but number two, I would say empowerment. Empowerment of the people. He believed in a bottom-up approach rather than the top-down approach to reform. Everything he did was to bring people into the process. I mean, you, you, you know, the, uh, the, the, the councils, the, the city and village councils, the way he went ensuring that they will have representation, that they would not be stacked by people who didn't even live in that, in that village or uh, they would be removed because somebody in Tehran didn't like the person who was there. So all of these were to give agency to the people at the lowest level of the society so that they become the protagonists of their own destiny rather than some official sitting in, in Iran, in Tehran. Thank you. Another viewer writes, did Mossadegh in his life align with Islamic terrorists of Fedayana Islam supported by Khomeini? In fact, uh, the, the, I, I read you the quotes. His answer to the Fedayan was very clear. And uh, he said, the, the role of government is not to take people to heaven. The role of government is to uh, you know, provide services to the people so that their livelihoods uh, improve. He was, as I said, he was not a revolutionary, he was not a radical, he was a reformist, and he wanted to work within the system. He never supported the radical uh, Islamic interpretation uh, that was at the time uh, facing him, either through Ayatollah Qashani or the Fadayyan Islam. In fact, Fadayyan Islam wrote him a letter in red ink, uh, simulating uh, blood, of course, and threatened to kill him, his children, and his grandchildren if he did not um, uh, ban alcohol and uh, um, uh, uh, impose uh, the veil. And he refused because, as I said, as I quoted, as I read the quote, he said, "People are free, and they're answerable, answerable before their God." Thank you. When one viewer asks, if we turn the clock back, what would you recommend Mossadegh do to repel American, British, Russian, and Islamic forces in the country? Well, as I said, uh, my own criticisms of him was that 
he was too much of a Democrat. Oddly enough, uh, by not cracking down when he should have, because the interests of the nation were at stake, he reinforced his image, uh, his legacy of a Democrat, but in the process, he lost power. So this is the, the, the classic dilemma of a Democrat. If you don't, you will be overthrown. If you do, you're no longer a Democrat. So I think he could have played a much tougher role. Why let Zahedi roam around Tehran conspiring when he could have arrested them? The guy, the, the, the man believed in the rule of law. Every time his ministers would come to him and say, arrest this or that, he says, prove to me, prove in the court of law that this person uh, had violated uh, the law. So uh, I think that that would be one criticism I would have, that he could have been a little bit more uh, strict and uh, applied the law <laughs> vigorously to the people who were trying to overthrow a legitimate government. And I think that that's where he uh, probably could have done a little bit more. Thank you. Um, this question pushes back a little bit. A viewer writes, you said that Mossadegh governed democratically, yet for all his tenor tenure, he insisted on extraordinary powers, which none of his predecessors had, not even when Iran was occupied. For most of his tenure, many cities were under military curfew or martial law, and there were da daily demonstrations against his government in which demonstrators died. Is his being a, Demo a Democrat a myth that his supporters have created? Well, let me say uh, two things. Uh, one, starting from the last part of the question about the demonstrations. Now uh, we know uh, the origins of those demonstrations. Even uh, those clashes uh, between uh, that were uh, attributed to the two day, we now know that it was instigated by MI6 agents infiltrating and posing themselves as today. And in fact, Mossadegh used to call them the today nafti. Now we have reams and reams of documentation of how the, 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 the foreign agents were congratulating themselves that our guys really messed, messed it up. The very first embarrassment of Mossadegh vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world was instigated by these uh, elements through MI6. This was in July of 1951, when Averill Harriman, uh, uh, Truman's personal representative, visited Iran. And there was this massive demonstration, and people were shot, killed. First of all, this was instigated by uh, the foreign elements. Two, Mossadegh immediately removed the, uh, the, 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 the head of security at the time, and he fired Zahedi, who was the Minister of Interior, because they shot at people. And he had given an order never to shoot at your own at your own people. So this notion that uh, and the second the first part of the question about his ikhtiarat, uh, his uh, plenary powers, uh, you know, you have to put it in the context. And in the book, I spent uh, a long, long uh, section of the chapter specifically going over the various ways you can look at this. There is the legal dimension, there is the transparency dimension, there is an accountability dimension. First of all, he did not grab uh, plenary powers. The Majlis gave it to him and the Shah signed the law, number one. Number two, that he was under the, uh, the, the plenary powers 
every single act of his would go back to the majlis and be either approved or uh, voted down. So it was not that he was a dictator and issued decrees. All of his powers, all of his laws could have been overturned by the majlis if necessary. And uh, in, important uh, uh, thing that he had um, built into the law of ikhtiarat specific check marks so that people would be notified. He would send controversial laws through the newspapers to the people to seek comments. Which dictator in which country sends controversial laws that he wants to pass to the people? And if you read uh, the, the newspapers of that period, it is the most vibrant democratic discourse and debate on policy in among the people. And no, 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 no uh, dictator allows that. And then finally, those laws that he passed were uh, in force after the coup for months and months and months. The same government that overthrew him used that law, those laws, to go after some of his supporters. So this notion that because he took uh, plenary powers, that he was a dictator. No, it was a procedure that was approved by the majlis. It was signed by an overwhelming majority of the majlis. And, he, and it was signed into law by the Shah. And that's why I said that arguably, the Shah violated that very law that he himself had promulgated, I mean, uh, uh, what do you call it, Farsi, Toshi, um, signed uh, into law himself. Thank you. We have uh, several viewers commenting, thanking you for your great and informative talk. Um, I want to read another question from a viewer. They write, how much of Mossadegh's passive balance theory was influenced by his education in France and de Gaulle's French post-World War II international policy of following a third path, neither fully with a capitalistic West and not entirely against socialism? Yes, I think uh, Mossadegh, clearly was influenced by his experience in Europe, in, uh, in France and uh, um, uh, Switzerland. I would say the Swiss model was probably uh, more influential in his mind. The neutrality that is implicit in the Mauvazine Manfi, I think you could, you could link it to his, uh, to his experience in, in Switzerland. But I think that he was a realist. I mean, a lot of people think that uh, Mossadegh was, a, was an idealist. I think he was a realist. He knew that you had to balance, you had to balance. And he found a way, because in the older days, the notion of balance before him was to give positive uh, uh, concessions. You give uh, concessions to the British, give concessions to the Soviets, give concessions to the thing. And he said, no, let's try a different one. Let's not give concessions to anyone. That was the essence of the Mauvazine um, and Fi. And it was, that's why now, uh, 70 years later, um, the non-aligned movement uh, basically considers him as the uh, grandfather of that movement. Um, so I think that you have to look at, uh, look at it in that sense that it was first and foremost was the national sovereignty that in order to have national sovereignty, you should not give concessions to anyone. 
And the, the, in, today's, uh, in today's world, you can ask the question, is that realistic? Can you do that? Well, he said, let's try. He tried, he was overthrown because the world at that stage was not ready for it. The things that he stood up and said to, uh, to the Security Council, if people are interested, you should go and read his speech to the Security Council. This is in 1951. The man stood be be before the old colonialists and imperialists and the world powers, and he gave them a lesson of morality, of statesmanship, of governance. I mean, it is a magnificent piece of uh, uh, logic and statesmanship to read that, uh, that, uh, that, that speech. Unfortunately, 70 years later, we still have one Security Council member vetoing the resolution. And this is what the mess that we have now in uh, Ukraine. So his vision, his vision has not yet been uh, realized. Thank you. One viewer asks, what was his support for women in politics at the time? Very interesting. Uh, uh, <laughs> in, in, in the book, I say, you know, on this issue, I mean, there is a paradox. This was a man who uh, grew up in the old Qajar, uh, 19th century Qajar uh, um, uh, context. He had Andarun Birun in his home, yet, in 1905, in an interview with uh, the, a friend of his from, from school, who later uh, wrote an article and he gave an interview, René uh, Vieillard, um, in which he talks about girls' education as the fundamental goal for the society to develop into a democratic system. He doesn't talk about anything else but girls' education. And then when he came to power, he was the first prime minister, the first leader of Iran to ever propose a law to give women the right to vote. At the time, he was bombarded. If you read the, uh, um, the, the newspapers of the day, I mean, he was, he was you know, dissected in, in, in front of everyone by saying that he is going against uh, all, uh, not only Sharia, but the customs and everything. And all he did, it was clever actually, he knew he would have uh, opposition. So what he did was just removed uh, the female gender from the list of ineligibility to vote in the uh, municipal elections. After he came under pressure, uh, they just did not uh, implement it. But he never removed it. In other words, he left it on the, on, the, on the books. Subsequent prime ministers would pick up the baton. Alam in 62, he was hammered again by the conservative elements and he had to backtrack. And eventually after the, uh, the so-called white revolution, uh, women got the, 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 the in fact. So the, the, technically there was some um, uh, paradox in his, uh, in his uh, approach but uh, as a true Democrat, uh, he, from the early times in the 20th century, he was talking about girls' education. Thank you. I think there's time for just maybe one or two more questions. A viewer writes, while a deputy during Reza Shah's time, Mossadegh objected to Ali Akbar Davar's judicial reforms. 
These took the power out of the hands of the clergy and Sharia and created the basis for a modern judiciary. Mossadegh is reported to have said that the Sharia courts were doing their job well. Is this strange for someone who is secular and certainly a European educated doctoral lawyer? His thesis and other writings were also in line with Sharia. How can one claim that he was a secular? Well, look at what he did. When the opposition was hammering him, sending him letters uh, threatening to kill him, uh, his children and grandchildren, if he did not implement the Sharia, what did he answer them? What did he do? That actually the Majlis, while he had the plenary powers, because the plenary powers, and this is something I forgot to mention, the plenary powers were very limited to nine points of reform, not outside. The Majlis continued to rule on other things. And one of the things they did was to pass a law to impose the hijab and ban alcohol. Mossadegh never implemented that law. He was taken to, to, uh, to task for why aren't you, uh, and he was saying, well, I'm negotiating things, let me give in Mata. He was just trying to find a ways of not pursuing that. So any objective, reasonable reading of his writing, his actions, and his behavior negates this notion that he was for the Sharia law. In fact, it was completely the opposite. As I said, he was a, a man of faith. In the personal realm, he was a believer and a man of uh, a spiritual person. But in the governance field, he said only reason, it was always reason and not the uh, uh, dogma that should uh, um, uh, guide a, a, a leader in, uh, in, in government. Thank you. Last question. Uh, the Today Party uh, viewer writes: The Today Party could have easily stopped and defused the coup. They had major political and military power, including their military wing with Khosra, Ruzbe in command. But each time, the Central Committee of the Party sent messengers to Mossadegh to permit bringing forces to the street and demolish the coup forces. He refused and said, "All is under control." Was this not his biggest mistake? Well, uh, as I argue uh, in detail in the book, the the story of the today, we still don't know. It is an enigma. They did have uh, certain cap uh, capabilities and the capacity. At that time, for example, we did not know, nobody knew that they had a, a tremendous network within uh, uh, the, um, uh, the military. Although their influence was less than the numbers would indicate because they didn't have them at the critical in the critical uh, units and at senior enough uh, level. So that was number one. The second, what is unclear to this day, is why the today stayed, stayed calm and stayed at home on the 28th. Uh, there are conflicting uh, theories, in fact, recounted by today leaders. Um, and there's a story that during, during the coup, the Central Committee met several times. And <clears throat> every time uh, the head of the party would walk out to call someone. And the question was, 
who was he calling? Who was he consulting with? And the, 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 the theory is that he was trying to get uh, instructions from the Soviet embassy, from, from, uh, from his uh, quote unquote superiors. And we will not know till the archives of the KGB are opened, unfortunately. So uh, really about the, uh, the, the, the today, we can speculate a lot there. Uh, on paper, you could say that today could have done more. And, uh, you know, Mossadegh's relationship with the today, that's a separate question. And I spend a lot of time in the, in the, in the book uh, saying that, uh, you know, he was, he knew that they were a force and he disagreed with, uh, with their policies, with the revolutionary approach, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, in the end, um, he could have used them maybe a little bit more. Uh, the question is, will they have um, participated? We will not know because of this, this thing, because they were not truly uh, indigenous, uh, independent political force. They were essentially controlled by Moscow. And we will not know what Moscow's strategy was. If Moscow knew that the, uh, and Moscow must have known that the coup was underway. I mean, they would have tracked Schwarzkopf, bringing in millions of dollars in, in several suitcases. Uh, they, they must have uh, tracked the meeting of the, of the CIA and MI6 with Ashraf and uh, with people who were sent over uh, before the coup to uh, convince the Shah. So they knew something was on. And the fact that they did not actively prevent it says a lot. And you remember, most, they could have saved Mossadegh financially, economically, by uh, returning to Iran, Iran's own gold that the Soviets took away uh, after the war, but they didn't. And who did they return the, go the gold to? Zahedi, after the thing. And who did they welcome in Moscow with open arms? The Shah of Iran. So, you know, uh, the today thing is a, is a very, very complicated one. Thank you so much, Mr. Gorgesani. Thank you for the um, detailed talk, for staying on with us to take uh, several of these questions. Thank you to everyone who submitted questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them. There, there were a lot. Um, a reminder that Mr. Gorgesani's book, two-part book, Ahead of Their Time, is available for most online retailers. There's information in the chat directly to the publisher. Um, we look forward to seeing you again soon. And um, for all of our viewers, you can join our email list and stay updated for our spring lecture series, which we'll be announcing soon. Thank you, Mr. Gorgistani. Thank you very much uh, for this uh, um, uh, excellent organization. Everything went very smoothly, and I'm glad we had a large turnout. And uh, I welcome very much the, the feedback and the, uh, the questions. It is a difficult subject, uh, but I think, you know, history is a series of arguments, I've always said. And arguments will continue based on new information until uh, there are no arguments. And one of the arguments that will continue for many, many more years is the role of today because we don't have the information. Once the KGB archives are open, I think there will be a lot of more history written. Thank you very much uh, to the organizers. Uh, Professor Miloni, again, thank you very much for the gracious invitation. And I'm delighted uh, that it all worked out well.